0: Hello and welcome to The Connected Singer with Michael Hill and me, Julie Thompson. We're both singers and vocal coaches who love researching and learning new ways to keep in tip-top shape vocally and mentally.
1: We know that being a performer is a hugely rewarding but also demanding career for mind, body and soul and we want to help you find the balance you need to Keep going on your musical journey. Each week, we'll be speaking to performers, teachers and expert practitioners in a range of fields.
0: From psychology to sports science to recce, who will share their knowledge and experiences to provide you with a toolkit of ways to keep well, beat performance anxiety,
1: avoid burnout and get the most enjoyment out of the pursuit we all love, Singing. singing.
0: So welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Connected Singer podcast. And wow, what an inspiring interview we've got for you coming up with Lisa Popiel. Yeah, Lisa was just so wonderful to talk to, wasn't she? I mean, she is, she's is. got such positive energy and her outlook on life is also really Positive and refreshing, both professionally and privately as well. Of course, you can just kind of see in her eyes that she's really excited and, and passionate about what she talks about. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you won't on the podcast see that, but um, but we we, <laughs> we felt that when we were talking about it to us. So, um, and what really struck me was um, her her openness to share her knowledge and her ongoing curiosity that she seems to have about everything in her life, really. Um, but also particularly regarding sort of singing. And that was, it was really infectious. I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to jump on that wave with you and let's go. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I guess, um, that's one of the reasons why she, um, she's so successful because she has that really inspiring energy that, uh, people just get swept along with don't they and as we know as teachers or coaches it's uh, it's important to have that um in order to inspire other people and to uh, uh motivate them and and she certainly had that I mean it was uh yeah it was a really really fun interview
1: yeah it really was and you know I think there's a of course in in this uh podcast I guess we're trying to to bring as many perspectives as possible, you know, so that people can, you know, dive down various research rabbit holes and investigate things and get excited about all the stuff that, that we also get excited about. And, and you know, Lisa's a, a testament to that. She's one of, one of these people that, you know, she's done research and, uh, you know, keeps investigating things, but also just above all else maintains this curiosity of, oh, it could be this. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I must find that out. How interesting.
0: Yeah. And I yeah. think there's a
1: tendency, you know, in the voice world, because of the great advances in research that have been made in especially the past, you know, twenty years, to be searching for what's the right answer. I need the right answer. I need to give my students the right thing. And, you know, I must be the font of all knowledge. And there's a real uh, you know, power sometimes in saying, Oh, I don't know. That's fun, I'm gonna find out, you know. And we we Yeah. We all need to explore that sometimes. Yeah.
0: Well I think it's the willingness to accept change and to you know, mm-hmm. keep learning and not just say that something's black and something's white to accept that there are grey areas that still need exploring and there can be fun in that exploration and and have no fear. I mean that was another thing that really came across from her outlook and, and the work that she's done is that she really is or I felt that she was fearless. She just went straight mm-hmm. into the deep end and was willing to do that to find out um, what's uh, well to deepen her knowledge but also just to to grow as a as a human being, that was my biggest takeaway. Actually, is that she's constantly growing and, and very very happy to move out of her comfort zone, you know, and jump into that deep water. For for, for mm. also for science's sake as well, I got the impression that it was also for the for the good of of finding out new knowledge, not just for herself, but so that she could pass it on to others. Because um, that was also that something that she was really passionate about was was sharing and, and supporting others. Journey.
1: Yeah, I think she's incredibly generous with all the, you know, if you ever attend one of her workshops online or, or, or in person, the material, the, the knowledge that she shares, it's uh, she's very generous with all, all of that stuff. And I, and I think we should also mention,
0: yeah.
1: you know, as, as a, an artist, I think sometimes it's kind of, oh, you know, do I have to make a choice? Am I a teacher or am I a performer? And she uh, had a, a career uh, in the eighties in 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 music and then all these years later I was on tour last year or the year before around uh the whole of the, the US with Weird Al Yankovic uh still gets invited to do these Frank Zappa <laughs> you know, <laughs> concerts all over the place. You know, it's where brilliant. she sticks on the, the, the French maid's dress and sings high seas <laughs> and a soprano voice. It's amazing. And yeah. it, she's managed to re-release some of her material from the 80s which you know we both love a bit of 80s music and oh, I,
0: yeah.
1: I, I genuinely think you know late 80s Madonna would have loved some of these tracks but you know she's <laughs> she can yeah. talk the talk and uh, walk the walk, walk which walk. is also really inspiring.
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely brilliant.
1: Well I guess without further ado we should dive in to the wonderful world of Lisa Popeil. This is a a wonderful long podcast. Stick with it. There's tons of great information in there. And it's one of these things you'll find yourself listening back to a few times over to find some new little, little gems in there. And I think we've certainly been doing that because she has so much to share and she was very generous with her time and knowledge. So get the kettle on, get listening and enjoy Lisa Popiel. The
0: connected city.
1: Well, she's been a muse to Frank Zappa, toured America with Weird Al Yankovic, been an 80s pop starlet, researched voice with the likes of Dr. Johan Sundberg. written books on vocal technique in the music industry, and has over 40 years of professional teaching experience, working with everyone from belters to jazzers to classical sopranos. She also comes from a family of inventors, which seems particularly appropriate for such an innovative teacher. Lisa Popiel, where do we start? Um, I guess we start at the beginning.
2: Wow. Text in the mail, Michael. Thank you for that introduction.
1: Um, Well, like I say, why don't we start at the beginning? Can you tell us a bit about your journey, first of all, as a singer?
2: Yes, um, I... I didn't have a, a very musical family, though I do think that my father, who learned to play piano 20 lessons by mail, probably had some some natural talent. I We had a piano at the house. And when I was four, my mother said, would you like piano lessons? And I said, okay. And then when I was six, she, six, she said, would you like to go to this, this school where they have acting, dancing, singing? I said, okay. But by the time I was seven, I'm told I had vocal problems, which I don't recall, but it could have been pre-nodules. And my mother took me out of that program because they basically had me yelling and found a classical singing teacher for me who decided to take me, even though she did not work with children. So by the age of seven, I started classical voice. And it was a very traditional vocal pedagogy, a lot of imagery and focus, uh, the ideas of focusing the sound and placement, um, and she didn't want me to listen to records. She was afraid that if I were, were to imitate opera singers, I might hurt myself. So I didn't. I didn't have any people in my ear. Just just her voice. She was from Germany, and uh, she was uh, had the kind of that heavy, dramatic, Germanic sound. But I loved my lessons. I loved. I loved learning languages. I I felt like I was stepping into beautiful paintings. That I was acting, uh, but I found it a little curious that of our hour lesson a week, fifty minutes or so of it would be quite lengthy, tedious vocal exercises without a lot of vocal instruction. And I had many questions about the basics. I I stayed with with the. Uh, with Gisela Goodling, who just passed away uh, last year in her 90s, who I've stayed close with all these years, <clears throat> I, I found that as much as I enjoyed my, my singing lessons, I had a lot of questions about the basics, and she didn't really have the answers. There, this was in the 1960s, and I stayed with her till I was 15, and then I moved from Chicago to Los Angeles. But my questions remained after I moved to Los Angeles, and I would search teachers to help me understand what was, what was a vocal register? What is vibrato? How do I change my vibrato? How can I sing high notes without singing in head voice? She couldn't help me, and in fact, with anything pop, she would not help me. She got extremely angry with me. The idea that I was I was going to do something that was obviously so detrimental to vocal health that I, that I would lose that I would injure myself and I would lose everything we had worked for. So I knew that she wasn't able to help me with anything pop singing pop singing wise. And it took me a long time to find anyone who had training, who had acumen, who was a professional singing teacher, who, who sang well in the pop genres, who could also teach. And I really hardly found anyone who fits that description. I went to college and got a master's degree in classical voice because that's what they offered. My bachelor's was in piano, composition, and voice. And then for my master's, which was an MFA, a performance degree. Uh, they, I knew I had to pick one of those three, so I picked voice. But I started writing my own songs when I was about 11 and just guessing my way through. And I started recording demos when I was 15, and I loved the recording studio. And uh, so I continued to write songs and, and do recordings and and uh, loved to to arrange and learn how to arrange and work all the the flashing lights in the Mm -hmm. recording studio. But after I got out of college, I really didn't know what to do with myself. I envisioned, you know, I fantasized really about having a a professional career as a singer-songwriter. But I think I might have been a little overeducated, meaning, you know, I thought very filmically about my music. And when I was really getting going in the 1980s with, with, uh, with uh, having agents and record deals, rap was starting, it seemed. And, and I felt like the the things I loved were really British pop music and not what was happening in, happening in Los Angeles. And there was such a, a pressure to, to write hits. So anyway, it, it all worked out fine. And now I'm, I have all these songs. I had an album. I had singles. I, i made a lot of demos. So for about six years, I worked really hard after college, my writing, I had, you know, I wanted to be sort of a cross between Madonna and, and Kate Bush, oh, wow. uh, you know, visuals and, um, and dance and art and where I'm playing instruments and, um, it was pretty avant. Some of it was a little avant garde, but but mostly it was just pop funk. You know, happy happy music with a few big ballads thrown in, with the occasional, you know, high C's um, singing along with with some kind of guitar solo. When I started in the music pop music business, I was already in my my mid twenties, and they were signing 14 year olds who had no music background and looked good in a pair of tight vinyl pants. So (laughs) I thought, "Mm, you know, I've got to, I got to stay young. I've got to sound young, got to look young because I was getting a a late start. So I I wrote a lot of material in those six years and, and learned a lot about recording technique and and performance. Um, So, but all the whole time, I was still struggling with these concepts of what are these basic things? Because as a pianist, everything's very obvious. You can see your hands. You can tell people exactly. Because I started teaching when I was 18. And, and I find that many professional singers who are, who are good singers get asked all the time, would you teach me? And they just pass on a few exercises. And I thought, there are so many great natural singers out there. They don't do exercises. And I started to suspect that doing exercises uh, was not the way to to teach or learn voice. It's not that I don't use vocal exercises. In fact, I enjoy very much making them up on the spot specifically for a student for whatever those particular needs are at that time for their voice, not just having a bunch of stock exercises that I make a CD of for them. So I. I started to have opinions about what was useful and what was really wasting their time and money. And, and I felt this, there's a sort of a cult at least here in the U S that doing particular vocal exercises will make you a good singer. And I studied with some of the famous, I studied with anyone I, I heard about really, but particularly famous LA singing teachers and Always learned a little bit here and there, to always learn something valuable, Uh, even how not to be a good, you know, how to be uh, what made a person a bad teacher or that they couldn't sing or they no longer sing uh, or they wouldn't sing for me or they couldn't demonstrate And that was very curious to me. It's like, you don't sing anymore because, of course, I couldn't ask that. That would have been too (laughs) rude. But was it because you used to sing, but your bad vocal technique doesn't allow you to sing anymore? Or, you know, just seeing all the different characters out there, mostly older, mostly classically trained. And I, early on, I'd say in the 80s, I really wanted to understand how to take a chest voice up high without pain or strain, meaning overlifting of the larynx. That's how I think of straining. I'm just reaching, I'm reaching for the high note. So anytime I tried to sing with Barbra Streisand, it always hurt a little afterwards. And I said, I must be doing something wrong. So I started watching great singers in various styles because I was also doing session singing. And in LA, that means it's an R&B gig, it's a rock gig, it's a country gig. It's a this, it's an opera gig, it's a legit gig. So I wanted, I'm very interested in, in analyzing and reverse engineering vocal styles, but not by starting and inventing the wheel, but by actually watching and doing, and I'm a mimic, so I could imitate these different singers and then figure out what body parts were doing what, and, which has led to, One of my sidelines, which is comparative vocal pedagogy for all the different genres. It's not that that's my main thing. I don't really have a main thing except to try to to simplify vocal techniques so it's really efficient, really personalized, and is at the atomic level, as I like to call it, meaning I don't like to link a lot of things together that, that are going to get me in trouble, meaning I want, as a teacher, I want to separate Function, what does what, and 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 how those different elements are used in, in different vocal styles for what I would call style authenticity. This is led in the nineties. I started doing research, and I don't go anywhere in the world that has has a an MRI machine. Uh, I'm still looking for a, a good a good source for direct EMG. I've got like four or five great EMG projects that I'd love to do. Amazing. So keep, keep your ear to the ground about that. But I've you know, got some great stuff from Japan, Germany, Sweden, France, again, any, anywhere, any place that'll have me and let me use their million dollar piece of equipment You'll for be the there. cost of a plane ticket. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really interested in voice research. And eventually when I get to it, I, I'd really like to make that research more available to the general public and I know science isn't just a one person thing, but it's still a good start, you know? So just because I can make these sounds like kind of push button sounds. So it's to see, it's a good start. And then hopefully people will take these ideas like the action of the hyoid bone or the pharyngeal constrictor or some of the things that I do that are somewhat unique in the world of vocal pedagogy and, and run with it and do tests with a larger a number of singers.
0: Actually, while we're, we're on that, something that you talk about is the five vocal cord closures. and I think I think our listeners would be really interested to hear about that and to hear what you mean by the five vocal cord closures and your yes.
2: well, like points on a line there are an unlimited number of points on a line but it's the same thing with vocal fold closures but I find it really helpful and voice saving to delineate five vocal fold closures. And I can get deeper into that, but the, the basic idea is that vocal fold adduction has a sound and a feeling. And that there are some that are harmful to the vocal folds, meaning that they will in short order create swelling, hoarseness, maybe worse, so uh, I'm I'm a big believer that vocal fold pressing must be avoided at all costs, and I notice that there are some pedagogies out there which seem to allow for for pressed, not pressed phonation in the the Johann Sundberg model of pressed, flow, and breathy, but rather where you're literally pressing them together and, and making a very big sound. So I just want to say that before I go on, that pressed phonation, in my view, is is extremely loud sound, not the sound that he defines as almost no sound coming out. Okay. Yeah. So the, of the uh, the two main ones that, that we use for singing that I hear good singers use is what I call clean phonation, where the vocal folds are lightly, lightly touching, and it would sound like this, ee, ee. And you just do it on a straight tone, on a comfortable pitch. And on the e vowel, you can actually feel a little tingling or vibration at the edges of the vocal folds, which for many people is the first time they've ever felt their vocal folds. I do a lot with vocal fold sensation, feeling thickness and thinness. Mm. And this might be the first introduction into feeling that. Because the vocal folds are the only body parts which can be normally injured. I'm not talking about extreme vocal sounds where you can dislocate your arytenoids, but in normal singing, the vocal folds are very small and prone to swelling to self-protect. And so learning to feel them is, I think, crucial and usually ignored in the many vocal pedagogies that focus on the face, the soft palate, the mask. So, clean closure might be used when you just want to sound like you're very direct with people. So, you when I sing like that, it sounds like I'm singing from my mind, like I'm just communicating in a very direct way. The the next one that's most commonly used, I call blowy. It's just my my term for the vocal folds when they are about a millimeter apart blowy sounds like this right now i'm singing with a blowy sound it is not perceived of as breathy it's not a breathy sound and yet i can feel a lot of hot steam in my mouth and if you put your palm one inch or so from your mouth you can feel steady hot steam on your mouth when i sing with a blowy sound with my hand in front of my mouth it's it's um it's quite a revelation to people how much hot steam is coming out, which you would not feel as much with the clean closure. So it's it's often used in jazz, but I'm hearing it more and more even in, in classical singing. Traditionally, classical singers, oh, I'm talking really pre-90s, would use clean closure all the time. But now I'm starting to hear people such as Renee Fleming, who... Who will um, use blowy? Just uh, you know, particularly for not uh, not a large sound. So if you're doing Wagner, there's no blowy. It's it's clean all the time. <laughs> but but I'm hearing a slightly more choice even in classical singing. So clean and blowy are the go-to sounds. They're often would blowy then have um, a volume limitation, which you said. Yes, that was yes. It does not actually. It doesn't. You can do it loudly. Ah, okay. It's not usually done loudly. Right. And I used to think that there was a volume limitation. It, it doesn't generate the kind of harmonics that clean closure will, but it can still be done loudly. And the person who really blew my mind and opened my mind to this idea was the British singer Louise Dearman, who, who sang, who did the two roles. the Blinda and Alphaba on the West End, and she does. There's a she does defying gravity, and there's a kind of a blurry, not very good uh, <laughs> bootleg video of that on available on YouTube. And she's doing defying gravity with Blowy. and it's gorgeous. It's so a much more emotional sounding, uh, but it's not typically done that way. Most belters do clean or or get into what I would call hard closure. Uh, clean or hard closure for belting, but I'm I'm thinking now that it is physically possible to be quite loud, not as resonant, because again the there's a, a, the either less flesh flapping, <laughs> or just, just the, 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 um, the the maybe the closure the closure is not as long, so you're not generating such amplified uh, overtones, but you can if you think of volume. Uh, in the vocal cord level, as the excursion, the width of the vocal fold movement, you can say you can put your hands together and tap them lightly and think of that as soft singing, and then widen them a little wider as you're clapping, and that would be medium volume. And then if you have a wide clapping, that would be for loud singing. So if you think of loudness in terms of vocal fold ex- width excursion, Yes, you can do that with blowy, but it's, it's not often done. But I think it should be done, be done more. It's a great color to have. Breathy closure to me is is uh, any, any sound that w- where the listener perceives the air in the sound. So it could be slightly breathy, moderately breathy, or very, very breathy. One thing I forgot to mention about blowy that's super important is that when you sing with a blowy sound, it sounds like you're singing from your heart compared to clean closure where it sounds like you're singing from your mind, your intellect. So I use both in a song and particularly from musical theater or even pop. I might do my blowy in the verses and clean as an ingredient in the choruses. So when I'm doing a a high note in pop or musical theater i i might do what i call the triple whammy the triple whammy is i'm higher in pitch i'm louder i'm actually it's a quadruple whammy okay i'm higher in pitch i'm louder i'm increasing my resonance whether that's ring or nasality or both and i am using clean closure. So those four things heard as a group make the the chorus can make the, these choruses extremely exciting and, and make people feel electrical on the, on their hair, their body hair back of the neck stands up. So I don't do this consciously. You know, when you know the atomic level of what does what, then you, you, can make choices and have more colors available to you. So it's not just one sound that's always this sound. When that sound that some people might teach as a sound is actually comprised of four or five different things that give you this full array of of, um, shades and hues. And not long after knowing what does what and and how that changes the feeling uh, or the, the style authenticity aspect of it, then you, you just, you go, you just, your talent, your artistry makes those creative choices and you just get to stand back while you're singing and enjoy the show and go, Oh, Oh, that felt right. You know, and just, so your artistry will play with the ingredients. But again, when things are too linked, it can be hard to have an understanding of the unlinking. And that's true for traditional classical pedagogy as well. Because in classical, when they, you raise your cheeks, you raise your soft palate, you lower your voice box, and you widen your throat. But what if you want to raise your soft palate and not lower your voice box? Now we're getting into some interesting stuff for pop singing. So I like to separate those, those elements as basic skills of singing in any style. So you would
0: say that you have to have this basic anatomical knowledge before you can start playing with this? Or would you say that you could also, you could produce these sounds by driving them through the emotion? Because obviously there's a lot of singers that haven't got the knowledge that are uh,
2: producing these wonderful variations of sound without... uh, They're not coming to me. They're not coming to me. People come right. to me because they they know something's not right. They they lack control. They they don't know if they're any good. They 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 want to. Ma- they coming to me because they need help. Yeah. Now I, I'll work with anyone. I, I I'm not picky. I'll work with anyone who's got a passion for singing, uh, any age, any style. So if I have somebody who says I have an audition next week, well. We don't, we might not do any technique at all. I might just find a good 16 bars for them, create a vocal, you know, just give a tip or two. Um, So I'm really, uh, what I love to do is to work with people who say, I want everything. I think singing is the most fascinating thing and I want to know everything about it. Then I will go into the detail. I've also, one of my goals was to create a method or an approach to teaching singing that anyone could understand. Having a, tech, a, a pedagogy that's, that's suitable for all ages, that's easily explained and demonstrable, makes it so they feel empowered and they don't feel stupid and they can get results right away. And I like to fix problems uh, as quickly as possible so we can get into the songs As I mentioned earlier, since I'm not a huge fan of of using vocal exercises as the way to train singers to be better, I want to get to the songs. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of songs, and so much vocal technique can be used in the course of a song. Also, a lot lot of people may think that I focus only on vocal technique, and it's not true. I love teaching... uh, Uh, phrasing and performance and gesture and facial expressions. And my studio in LA, I have a room with a stage and lights and a sound system. So we work on mic technique and how to put a set together and uh, how to deal with an audience that you can't even see and how to do pattern and um, all the things that go into being a performer, a live performer that is completely different from being a recording artist. So I've got my recording studio, and most of the time that's what people want because they, they, I, I know how to make them sound good. So I'm a recording engineer too, so I can help make them so perfect sounding that that becomes their best self. And then they take that home and hopefully, the goal is not only they have something that makes a nice present for their family, or that they can put up on their website, but also they're hearing themselves in a perfect way, and hopefully that will help them rise to that level in in real life.
0: Actually, it's um it's interesting because I've done a lot of coaching in studios as well with singers, and many singers they really learn quickly um when they recording themselves. So if you record them and then they listen back, they're obviously their oral skills like quadruple very, very quickly because they hear, but then they're able to analyze their own voices and realize, oh, wow. Okay. I thought I was doing that, but actually <laughs> I'm
2: doing this. And um, and I find that a really good environment. To it's come, a great know. learning environment. I concur with you a hundred percent. I tell people that the recording experience is going to uh, speed your learning curve tremendously because you'll be able to really hear yourself. And what yeah. you what you mentioned that they've I've heard exactly the same thing. It's such it's such a confidence booster, and a, a great adjunct to vocal training. And I think a lot of teachers now have this uh, ability to at least rudimentarily. M- have people record in their studios. Um, But that's fairly recent. And I I do, I work with a lot of colleagues, you know, who ask me, what do I do and how do I do it? And I'm always happy to talk to colleagues, particularly if they come from the classical background, how to set up their studios. Um, (laughs) You know, it's great when we all can help each other so that we you know, we're getting our ego out of the way and thinking of this sort of common good about how do we move vocal pedagogy forward? How do we bring more joy and, and helpfulness to people who, like us who have a passion for singing and how to become the best singers that we personally can be where that doesn't stop, where we don't stop singing, but we keep trying to figure things out so we can only become better yeah. over time. Yeah. yeah
1: we must come back to some, uh, some more artist-related yes. questions, but since we're still in this world of, uh, uh, of pedagogy, um, was, there, was there a moment, a kind of eureka moment for you with voice, uh, with your own voice, with uh, teaching, something that made you go, ah, this is, this is how it works?
2: Had, I had several moments. I remember when I was able to make a, a comfortable and attractive belting sound years ago and I could do it repeatedly, I felt like I had, uh, like the bell in the oven had, had just gone off and that the, the bread, this imaginary bread in the oven was golden brown and perfect. So, or, or I also had this image that I'd gotten to the top of Everest and I'd put the flag there after all my tears, really literally tears for decades on how do I do this thing where it's repeatable, it's comfortable. Uh, so that was that was a, a, a wonderful moment of, I'm glad I stuck with it and didn't give up <laughs> and go into linguistics or video production or all the other things I had been, been thinking about. Another moment was this feeling uh, that, that, that literally feeling that if you put your finger at the top of your neck, at the crook of the neck, the top right above the voice box, before I even knew about the hyoid bone, I noticed that there was, um, that there was something moving. And I think I thought also, and I still do, that the, that the thyroid cartilage was actually moving forward. So there was a general feeling that the upper part of my neck was pulling forward when I took a chest voice, which uh, to me is a talking sound, an extension of speech, like what I'm using right now. Uh, It can be very loud or not. And taking this speech-like sound um, up high uh, without going into head voice, that, that was pulling forward. And I called it in the early 90s, I called it laryngeal lean or I call it lean for short. It was a feeling that this was pulling forward, but I also could feel it with my hand. And this action, along with the whole posture of belter's bite, which is the the activation of the masseter muscle, the, the head slightly tilted up, the relaxed tongue, the slight protrusion of the chin the firm but flexible lower jaw, that it was integral. All of this was working to help the lean action, which would allow me to take a a chest voice up high that didn't have to be loud. And I knew that I was onto something new with that, simply by, by poking around. Also with vibrato, I have a whole like protocol for fixing vibrato issues that have heretofore been considered just a natural part of the voice and don't make it, don't make it happen. Just well, I'm, I, to me, I want to be good. So <laughs> if I can make it better, I want to make it better and appropriate to to the style if possible. And
0: vibrato is, is so often used in pop as well these days. It's, it's quite uh, an important part to focus on or to learn, as you say, to control because there's so many variations that we hear. So many variations. Because you've have- you
2: have also like belting substyles. I thought was really interesting. So oh, thank sense. you. So uh, I did a presentation in 2005 at a, a vocal science con- uh, conference, and I was talking about belting, and I was doing this, d- demonstrating. And there was a New York, uh, a well-known New York belting teacher who came up to me and and questioned my approach and said, well, I don't know if what you're doing, what you're doing is not what we do in New York. It's, she's, she said to me, maybe what you're doing is more out of, is, is more pop related. And um, I, I gave it a lot of thought. I thought, what, what if she's right that I'm, that the, the style that, that the style that I was doing to me was a, con- a more contemporary a modern form because everyone's mic now in musical theater. And it, we weren't talking about rock. I wasn't talking about gospel. We were talking just about musical theater. So I started listening to see if I, I could improve my, my basis of knowledge. And I, um, this was, again, 15 years ago. And I... St- started to, to notice that I could put people in these five categories. I didn't mean it to be five, it's just that there turned out to be five that I could put everyone into. Uh, there was brassy belt, which is like the Ethel Merman sound, which was uh, wingy and nasal, but more nasal uh, in terms of the ratio. Then um, there was a certain mouth shape that, that seems to produce that sound easily. There's nasal belt, which has very little ring in it and is typically used traditionally. I don't care for it, but traditionally used by males in musical theater and very few women except maybe uh, Patti LuPone. Then there was heavy belt, which was the very, hail, hey, the very throaty sound, which has a very strong vocalis muscle contraction and, and is the only one of the five belting substyles that it sounds like it's coming out of the throat. And, and a good example of that would be Elaine Stritch. And in my article, Multiplicity of Belting, where I first presented these ideas, I have sa- uh, not samples, but just a list of male and female people who I heard use these style, these belting sub Doesn't mean they always do. It just means that when I heard them on iTunes, they, they exemplify this, this sound. Um, Oh, I guess I should demonstrate just for fun a little brassy. Yeah. So there's no business like show business. Let me try higher. There's no business like show business. So it's got some ring in it, but it's got more nasality for the the more um, no, 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 nasality in, in comparison to the heavy belts. So nasality meaning just uh, the lowered soft palate okay. and a more the low buzz in the resonance. Right. Um, so I think that the, the, of the five belting substyles I mentioned, only heavy belt is very throaty and it may or may not have nasality. It has nasality, but you can control the amount of, of nasality. Uh, so then, so there's brassy, there's, what was the other one I mentioned? Uh, heavy? Was there, heavy. A, that was uh, that. those are the two. Okay. That Okay. So wing, oh, nasal belt. Nasal belt is that. Here's a good example. I've got that sound. See, it's a facey sound. You feel, which means it's a thinner vocal cord. Thinner vocal cord makes you feel vibrations shoot out of the face more. Um, so actually placement, this idea of singing through the mask or singing through the face is, is actually a backdoor way to thin a vocal cord. So I have other ways to, to thin a vocal cord that are actually direct, but I just wanted to throw that in there that so many things that have been used traditionally, actually they start in the larynx and in the vocal cords uh, and produce secondary effects. So, Uh, The nasal sound would be a a facey sound, uh, not a throaty sound. And that's that kind of sound. And I might use that if I'm lazy or if I'm tired or I'm bored or I'm a heavy drinker or I hate, you know, I hate my life. So it, it has many emotional elements to it, which is why I don't like it for men, because when men are trying to be romantic in musical theater, and they sound bored at the same time because of excessive nasality. Going, no, 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 just, just feel a little more yawny. Just raise your soft palate and now I'll buy that you're truly romantic. <laughs> another one is the ringy, ringy uh, belt. And that's more like a uh, Kristen Chenoweth. Forgive me for only using female examples. Actually, the other version, another good example, a male example of ringy belt is uh, Joel Gray when he did uh, the original... A uh, cabaret like Welcome in Avenue, welcome. So it's not that there's there's nasality in that, but the ring is so predominant. Or, or um, Kristen Chenoweth, the popular. I've got that kind of sound that's so just very ringing, and, and that's good. I have lists of emotions, and you know things like ditzy, or annoying, or determined to be heard. So, uh, so that's ringy belt. And then the most common one is, in my view, what I call speech-like belt. And when I say speech-like, I just mean that it sounds like an extension of my speaking voice. And I can make it really loud. But I don't want to hurt the mic and have it distort. But it's, it, has, it has ring and nasality in it but it's more muted. And it sounds like I'm talking to you. And then I can add more ring or add more nasality, but predominantly it has a slightly more muted resonance and has a more oral uh, sound to it. And that's almost all that's being done now um, uh, in Broadway in the West End. And it's, yes, she was right. It does come from pop. And that's what's happening now. So I was, maybe I was a bit prescient about what was to come. So what would you say then, as you mentioned pop
0: and it coming from pop, where where would you see most of the commercial pop singers at the moment? That's quite a broad question, actually, but where would you fit them? What type of belting are they using? Um, or perhaps you could... I'll give a few examples. You've got sort of the Beyonce, but you've got someone like, um, I don't know if you know, a British artist called Dua
2: Lipa. I don't know if you know her. I, I would need to hear again. I'd need to hear 15 seconds and see. Most of them I would put, if they're pop, I mostly would put them into this broad category of, of speech like belt. And that but, doesn't mean that they're not changing their resonance in moments, but if I had to pick one... Yeah, that they're predominantly in. It's almost always speech like Um, and gospel is a little bit different gospel. I, ah, Hmm. (laughs) I don't know if I could put that into one of those five. I might have to come up with a sixth one. I might have to come up with a sixth one because it really, because I really did the the whole thing on musical theater only. And Mm -hmm. I did not extend it to, to rock or gospel belting. So I think, uh, Michael, could you put that down on my to-do list, please?
0: (laughs) Um, So it's an
2: excellent question. We heard it here first. So we we heard heard it here first. But I, I do think that the, the, this, this new idea that the pharyngeal constrictor is creating, that when squeezed forward, particularly the superior one in the back of your mouth, on the pharyngeal wall in the back of your mouth, that it is creating a a nasal-esque sound. But the sound that's coming out, I don't know if it really fits in nasal belt or brassy belt. The mouth shapes slightly different. So I'm going to have to think about that one and I'll get back to you. (laughs) But anyone who's interested in my multiplicity of belting article, um, I revised it a little bit, you know, about a few years ago, but it's still for musical theater. And it's got some of my research results on vocal fold vibrational patterns, some of the characteristics that I, you know, researched over the years with a bunch of different research colleagues uh, specifically for musical theater. So um, uh, anyway, that's, uh, you know, I'm happy to send it to anyone who wants to email me through my website. It's, uh, it's, it's good and it led to workshops and, and uh, I think it's in, been in other people have adopted it as an idea, at least as a starting point that there isn't one belting sound. I apologize that I, I did not go into detail on the four types of hard vocal fold closure and then an example of pressed. Happy to do that if you, if you want me to. I've heard a belting pedagogy that was ringy, so ringy that it hurt my ears and used at least hard closure, if not pressed closure. And thinking to myself, that's not being used professionally. Nobody's, it, it's very limited in, in terms of color. It's, uh, it's, it's assaulting. To the ear makes the eyes kind of go squinky when you hear it. And I guess it would be under ringy belt. I guess I'd have to call it because it was so very ringy. Um, and it's and I don't believe that anyone is going to be able to do eight shows a week with that kind of sound. Plus mm-hmm. it's just wearing it just wears on the ears. That's that's one of the downsides of ringy belt. If somebody is too ringy for too long, it creates a kind of oral fatigue uh, mm-hmm. in the listener. So I don't want to be too box.
0: Go yeah,
2: ahead. which I guess if, it's, if your ringy belt is very sharp,
0: I guess for certain styles, maybe for rock concerts live, it would be okay for a certain environment for a certain amount of time. But I guess in the studio... I know this this feeling. It's very difficult to be too over loud. The, the technology is so good these days <laughs> that you have this impression that everything's so loud and so close and and therefore you don't feel the need or to have the energy to really belt it out that loud. It's it's a completely different sense of uh, of belting. I, I think. also
2: think that ring should be, because it's so powerful, it should be used intermittently, similar right. to cayenne in cooking. Yeah. Don't put it on... liberally on everything also as the person the producer or if you're doing live the sound mixer they often add ring they boost those frequencies uh i don't like that by the way i don't i don't like an overall boost unless somebody's just dull all the time i prefer you know maybe boosting ring harmonics uh, spot uh, increasing them, increasing ring on certain areas. But I, I see a lot of um, in live performances where the sound guy has the ring harmonics so boosted that even in the per- when the person sounds like they're they're low, soft, and whispery, they sound ringy, and that's not natural. And it's uh, I and sometimes I think the sound, the live sound guy is just he doesn't have his hearing anymore. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you're interested in delving deeper into Lisa's world of vocal pedagogy, you can find links to all her books in this episode's podcast info below. And we also have a link to her belting workshop on YouTube. It's a real treat to see Lisa in action. And as we know that one of the best ways to deepen our understanding of vocal technique is to see and hear examples, we have also added links to the singers Lisa mentions below. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to ensure you keep connected with us, as we will be offering our subscribers opportunities to join workshops, question and answer sessions, and lots of other goodies with Michael and I in the new year. And we are very excited. But first, let's get back to the conversation with Lisa to hear her take on touring, syncing your music. Music and working with Frank Zappa.
2: I went on tour last summer. I was, uh, uh, which was a whole other amazing story of singing, singing live for a quarter million people center stage, not off into some dark corner as a backup singer, but to be able to. It was still backup singing, but it was uh, so that was low stress, but it was an amazing experience and finding a really good live sound mixer is is can be challenging because of the the hearing issues and they're they don't hear it so they boost the ring on on everything so was that uh, with that uh, was that was was that with weird l yes yes ah. it was um i've, I've uh, known him since the his early days 1983 and uh we've been quite close ever since and i've sung on most of his records over the years so it was great to finally meet the fans because there's a lot of hardcore weird owl fans out there (laughs) who 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 are who can relate to his personality and his message and his weirdness and and uh so there's quite an interesting crowd but you know, I did a lot of signing of things. It was great. It was like my 1980s fantasy come through, come true, but in a low, like I said, it wasn't very hard, you know, <laughs> an hour and a half and, you are know, done and full orchestra. That was a treat too, to, to sing with a 40 to 60 piece orchestra, including the National Symphony, the Colorado Symphony, uh, and, and working with in-ear monitors for the first time in my life and, and seeing what that was like. And I, I uh, I did definitely you have to you know when it's that loud you have to and just being able to work with these musicians who with Al's band who've been working with them for, since 1984 and their their musicianship and ability is just beyond belief uh to be able to 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 play with uh, or to perform with musicians at that high a level was uh, was a complete treat and plus to see the USA on a tour bus and Canada <laughs> Um, oh, you know, yeah. they're like pinching myself. Yeah, I'm, you know, in my 60s and I'm sleeping on a tour bus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was a magical experience.
0: But that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's a really inspiring story, actually, that the, the joys of life as a singer you can always keep learning, you can keep always keep experiencing, and you can always have a career whatever age you are, or shall I say, whatever part of your career you are, your, your singing career can go on well forever if you want to, if you keep the, yes. the spirit alive, because you've got a great energy and enthusiastic. And I think that's part and parcel of it and, the, and joy of life.
2: And, and also this sort of starting and then coming at full circle and the other thing that's happened recently that's exciting to me is that all my songs that I put so much hard work into in the, in the eighties, um, I've, I'm now posting and I've had remastered and, um, and I'm working with a music supervisor who, who loves them and calls these eighties thing, they're called vintage and he's going to be, we've just signed. And so he's going to be pitching to, uh, to film and TV. So, I may actually be able to Get some checks in the mail uh, for the rest of my life, and and have people hear these songs. I call I'm calling them the hits that never were, uh, and um, by posting them, my 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 friends and family and colleagues who never knew about this past life that I had as a as a singer songwriter musician. I wrote, I play all the instruments. You know, I I've got cool photos from the '80s, and so I feel like they're off the shelf. They're just not going to molder and die with me, but they're, they're having a life. And, um, and I'm getting such a beautiful response on, particularly on Facebook. I'm on CD baby now on YouTube, uh, iTunes. And so it, I have this feeling of completion that my, all my hard work was not for nothing. And I don't feel bitter about that anymore. I feel just happy. Oh, thank you for for
0: sharing that, because I think that will inspire a lot of singers, not just sort of young singers, but people,
2: singers of all ages. So, okay, big piece of advice I did not know about. If you've got good 70s and 80s material that you own as a songwriter, meaning you and you can get owner, I'm trying to get ownership back from my my record deal. Because we're in a I'm in a window right now, which I still have to pursue, but there's this window where I can get my ownership back from the published the new publishers. I hope I don't have to hire an attorney for this. But anyway, I'm digressing. There's even ways to get record deal material back, at least in the US, from record companies that are there or or defunct. And when you own your own songs, you can you have something valuable because there this vintage idea there's a premium you can get paid extra for sync licenses for your 70s and 80s material and there's a demand for it so get that stuff off your shelves get it digitally remas- get, get it digitally transferred from your albums all you oldsters um and uh research sync sync agents Yeah. Music supervisors don't want to talk to you, but sync agents will because they are the the ones that that really are the the go between. And if you can find a sync agent, I have vintage 70s or 80s songs that really sound of the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a place for it. Thousands and thousands of dollars you can make. Because I hear these Gen Xers and Zers making 80s material, but getting a, a D50 or a Jupiter 8 and a Linn drum machine, does it, it still sounds content- too contemporary. So there's a lot, you've got to have the lived, you had to have the purple hair and the triangular, you, know, you had to live in the time to really pull it off. So yeah. um, I, it's so funny. Uh, the latest one I just posted, my, my big ballad, uh, I just posted uh, last night and I said, I'm apologizing for the loud Lynn snare and, and you know <laughs> people are already writing, but it seemed right at the time. I go, absolutely, it was just seemed right at the
1: time. <laughs> well, it's, it's fascinating with that, that whole world. I mean, I, I for the first time, I came across a whole YouTube channel of people making this... Uh, 80s style pop in a very, what seemed like quite an authentic way. And I know there's a a Swedish group with a French name, Forêt de Vin. They they got some real uh, exposure because Brendan Urie from Panic at the Disco just heard one of the songs and was like, this is just the best 80s power ballad Style song, and what, what when it's done well, you think, you know, even if it's a bit overblown and overproduced, it, the music was just brilliant. I mean, that's personal taste coming out, but people really wrote fantastic songs.
2: Oh, I I would love I I just wrote that down. I would love to hear more of of, of contemporary good 80s sounding stuff. That would be real. I just haven't heard it yet, but I, I'm there's got to be out there. I'm surprised the Japanese haven't done it. They're so good at at uh, sort of copying and then surpassing, <laughs> going beyond, above and beyond with with coolness and quality. Yeah,
1: um, I, I was thinking uh, you've we've covered like so much stuff. I want to to just mention because uh, we 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 had this in the list. Um, artist-wise, one of the other things you did uh, was working with Frank Zappa, which I mentioned in the. The heads up at the start. And um, for those of you who who are in the know, you know, he was this super avant-garde jazz musician. My only memory as a child is that he had a really scary music video with monsters made of (laughs) Play-Doh and it really creeped me out. Um, But the music was very cool. But you did some really experimental stuff with him. I mean, different to your pop music, but what... What did you learn from that experience? Because it must have been pretty, uh, pretty cool, pretty out there.
2: Working with, with Frank was the most intimidating musical experience I've ever had because I didn't know his music. I wasn't a fan. I, I lucked, if you could call it that. Yes, I would call it that. I lucked into an audition with him. I was almost forced into an audition with him. I was really at the audition to support my boyfriend who was a fan who knew the music. And I was just there to help my boyfriend set up and give him some moral support. But I wound, I wound up auditioning at the amazing nine foot Bösendorfer with the extension keyboard at the bottom, you know, where the white keys are black and the black keys are white, I'd never seen that before. And I went through this quite lengthy, you know, like an hour long audition at the the uh, the push of the, the uh, resident uh, amazingly talented keyboard player, and I sang. But when I was singing, I was doing it in an operatic style with jazz phrasing because it was funny. That's a funny combination, and humor is a big part of of Zappa's was a big part of Zappa's approach. And so I knew I knew how to do funny things with my voice, and I can sight read so I can read anything, but what I can't do is memorize. And so I needed to memorize four hours of unplayable, not just piano music, synth music. And this was in 1981 and this was the very beginning of synth. So they all had to be programmed, which was not, I didn't have much experience with that. And these so much material for which there was often no fingering I would try different fingerings and there was, uh, there was none. <laughs> uh, and then he'd want this and this. He'd want different styles. Okay. We're going to do this one in country. You know, I'm not an ear player. I just read. That's what I do. So um, I was in the band for three weeks, got paid extremely nicely and worked very, very hard from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep to try to learn this material. But mostly what I tried to do was make them laugh. So I would, I would do, you know, when I used to have a high D, I would, you know, he'd, he'd say, get a, get a violin. And I'd play violin, which I can't play and then put out a high D and then he'd fall off his seat. So that my goal was to be as good as I could be and make him laugh. And uh, eventually I was replaced in the band for that tour by a very experienced, I just got out of college and by a really experienced um, a keyboardist, a singer, great you know, great rock's voice, great soprano falsetto sax player, but he wasn't funny like I was, and he didn't wear lingerie like I did. So anyway, a few months later, I was in, Frank invited me to perform at the Santa Monica Civic in uh, in California, and I, I, I wore lingerie. I just and uh, it's, I knew he'd like it, so I went to this funny store, famous store in LA called, in Hollywood called uh, Trashy Lingerie. I don't know if you know this, Michael. And I got this little not much outfit with the the big heels and the, the French Maids outfit. And I, I came out in eight yards of black nylon, no shame, you know. And I came and I unwrapped myself from the, the, and then I'm standing there on this rock stage with thousands of people, never sung for 5,000 people before. And then I just did my my silly thing, and it was, uh, you know, kind of infamous. <laughs> it's still available, it's most of it's available, and I still perform at Zappa uh, festivals. So I was supposed to be in Oslo, Norway, at the age of uh, 60, 64, I think I am now, uh, last time I counted, and that was going to be in, in November of this year, and I was already planning to. to check online for my next piece of inappropriate clothing uh, for the fans. <laughs> and, <laughs> but it, it'll be, it'll happen next year. So let's get the word out. That's called Zappa Union. And you can hear my three, but really just three songs that I do. And it's, it's wild. and a lot of it's improvised. So it's improvised vocal accru- silliness. And some of it used to be where uh, 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 someone would play, let's say, Steve, I would play a a guitar lick, and then I was supposed to imitate it or, you know, do the same notes. And But I didn't know that. It, it was all so, so improvised. And then the bass player, Scott Tunis, would play something, and I'm, you know, and I'm trying to do that. And then the drummer, and I don't know what I did for the drummer. but So it was, it was very creative, and it took a lot of cojones to, uh, to do that. But I felt when I was on that stage in 1981, I felt I was home. And that was the high point of my career. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> wee, wee. <laughs> the Connected singer Actually, there are many more fascinating highlights to Lisa's multifaceted career. Therefore, to hear more, tune in for part two, where she'll share her go-to tricks for confidence, what she's learned from voice research, and how to keep your vocal folds happy with practical exercises just for you, our wonderful listeners. See you there. (laughs) The Connected